Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I'm Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is the great Kevin Pelton of ESPN, and of course, we have a lot to discuss with the conference finals going on, how we got here, where these things are going, and of course, a little bit about what the NBA finals could look like, even though we're not 100% sure of what that could be. Episode is brought to you by FanDuel. New customers get a no-sweat first bet up to $1,000. Go to FanDuel.com slash Boston to check it out. And I hope you really enjoy the episode. Here we go. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, as always, for having me. Well, we have two pre-postmortems to do on the conference finals. We have two 3-0 series for, I believe, the first time in a long time. We haven't had two sweeps. Law Murray had this. There have been two sweeps in the conference finals, which is not, of course, definite yet, since I think it was 57. Danny, Danny, you're outing yourself as not looking at my tweets. It was 2015 was the time this previously happened, although the Warriors did not finish that sweep. We gave the Rockets a gentleman's sweep in that series. I apologize. Um, but let's start let's start with the one that is I believe it's technically over now, but the one that is more fresh, and that is Celtics Heat. And we there's plenty of attention to be paid to Boston, not only likely losing the series, but performing the way they have. But I think that starting there does a disservice to how great the Miami Heat have played. Yeah, I mean you know, I, I feel like I, there was a conversation the other day about the Heat's talent, basically, and that they had gotten this far. And my response to that was, well, yeah, if they're going to make all these threes, they're awfully talented. And one of the interesting things that's happened this postseason is, you know, is, is happens every playoffs. It's especially apparent in the other series, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a moment. A number of players get played off the court because of their limitations as the intensity goes up. And that hasn't just happened to a single Miami Heat player. Other than possibly Kevin Love. But even he was still contributing. I mean, you know, he he was a little bit bogans at times, but uh, not really a drain on the team, I wouldn't say necessarily. Uh, Now, the interesting storyline is that Tyler Hero hasn't been a part of this. And you you wonder, I don't want to say Ewing theory because he's not that important a player, but it it does feel like the fact that teams haven't had an easy Uh, place to pick at defensively. David Lee Lee theory? (laughs) That's that's not a bad way to go with it, yeah. Uh, The fact that teams haven't had an easy place to pick at defensively with the Heat, particularly when Love is not on the court, and the fact that Max Struess, who's a pretty good defender, is the guy that you're ending up targeting, I think that's something that's really served the Heat well. And again, look, if you've got Jimmy Butler doing his Jimmy playoff Jimmy, thing and everybody else is making and bam is is doing everything that he does and all the other guys are making shots like that is actually a pretty good recipe for a title contender particularly when they're defensively versatile and guys that you have to guard like that's one of the other differences between miami and a lot of other teams is that they have some defensive negatives in the rotation but they have at least to this point and full credit to the players themselves and to spolster and the coaching staff for making this happen that you know like duncan robinson has played respectable amount in the series he had some big plays in game two and of course in game three and put Struess and Vincent have done well overall defensively and so that that double of have to guard them and can hold up at least well enough on defense is a very basic threshold that you know that a lot of players get crucibled and it, it's largely because of one of those two failings yes I should have referenced of course uh, the crucible from our buddy Nate Duncan your your podcast partner in crime 
Yeah. I, and then the other element of it is just like, we, we, I mean, we have to like focus on the level of shooting that we're seeing from Miami. I mean, so much of this year's playoffs, I think, has been about even in an era where teams shoot better than ever, shoot more frequently than ever, although a little less than last season. Still, the best defensive strategy remains packing the paint because of how valuable it is to get to the free throw line, to score at the rim, all of those things. And so much of the battles in this year's postseason, the Lakers-Warriors series was a great distillation of this, have been, can you make enough shots to keep other teams from packing the paint? And Miami has been on the correct side of that line to the point where, you know, the adjustment for the Celtics going into game three for Joe Mazzola and his coaching staff had to be taking their best rim protector off the court in Robert Williams, taking him out of the starting lineup in favor of Derek White, a move that probably was the right one, but uh, obviously did not change things at all. It did not. And so before this game is counted within the NBA.com stats, Miami is is fourth in three-point percentage, but that will probably shift after their ridiculous shooting 19 of 35 in game three. So that'll, that'll bump it up. And remember, we're working with a 14-game sample here. So one game can really move things a lot for them. But it's more than even at some point than the, the million threes that it feels like Caleb Burton has hit, including in, in key situations. It's also, you know, like how that bends the defense and having it where you don't want to truly leave guys also come in combined with willing passers means that Jimmy Butler, Bam Adebayo have not only more space, but more advantages to work with. Yeah, we witnessed this with Jimmy Butler over the last two games. The complaint in the fourth quarter of game two was, well, why aren't they helping against Jimmy Butler one-on-one against Grant Williams? Well, they tried that tonight. How'd that turn out for you? It turns out you gave up a bunch of my open Miami three-pointers. I mean, I'd probably rather lose that way, I suppose, on some level. But either way, you lost. You have. And that and, and Miami, it, it's such a wild thing. I mean, as somebody who's been burned by over and underestimating their support players over the last two years to see Struess and Vincent in particular really bounce back. I mean, and Duncan Robinson too, in fact, I mean, he, he had some stretches over the last two years where he's been straight up terrible to be competent rotation players, competent starters, depending on which player we're talking about. And at times way better than that. I mean, the shot that Gabe Vincent hit that functionally sealed game two was a jaw dropper. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just been a really, so you, you mentioned their three point shooting. The other element of it is other teams not making threes against them. And, and that was obviously, obviously very apparent in in game two as much as Boston struggled to make anything the first three quarters. So if you look at so they're not really at the bottom necessarily of opponent three point percentage, but they're very low in that regard. And they're much higher than they were in the regular season, as you alluded to, in terms of their own three point percentage. If you look at the differential between your three point percentage and opponent three point percentage regular season to playoffs entering Sunday night, the four biggest improvements in that regard, the 2001 Lakers who are basically the greatest switch flippers of all time. They added a healthy Derek Fisher for that title defense and came within a game of going undefeated, dominated the Spurs in a sweep of that series uh, in really impressive fashion. Maybe the maybe the greatest playoff team of all time that wasn't the Warriors with Kevin Durant. Number two is the 2005 Spurs, which is odd because they were a very good regular season team and it actually took them seven games to win the finals that year against Pist- the Pistons, but uh, they shot the three much better in the playoffs. Number three was the 2011 Mavericks, another one of these come out of nowhere to win a championship type of team and the Heat 
entering tonight were fourth. Wow, wow. And so we don't, obviously, we'll we'll talk about a potential finals matchup later on, but it does make the Heat, I mean, they're a, a tougher team to defend than we expected, especially once Hero went down. Like, that was, to me, I thought that, you know, they won game one of that series, and I'm just like, but Hero went down, it's like, oh, it's going to be a lot, it's going to be easier to defend them, but those guys stepped up. Jimmy Butler has been ridiculous, the playoff MVP so far, though he has some, some strong competition, and all of the pieces have fit together in incredibly well is it is there something bigger that we can draw from this so far is there something like it, it did did like whether it's models or us as analysts is there something that we got wrong or is this good players playing better than they had before maybe playing better than you expect moving forward well i would say models that had the celtics at 97 percent win the series the, there's probably some things you can learn from that I mean, it's going to be interesting to see what the ramifications are. Like, certainly if it had been Lakers heat, like, I, I feel like it would have been very difficult to compel people to care that much about the regular season next year if, if two teams had come out of the play-in to get all the way to the NBA Finals. Uh, I Just one team doing it is probably enough, especially in a long lockout situation, which, you know, is the only other time that we had an eight seed get to the NBA Finals. So it'll be interesting to see the implications of that from sort of a how we manage the season philosophy next year. I think in terms of our evaluation, I don't know. It's interesting because, again, we just talked about that three-point differential stat. Like, that's the sort of thing that's supposed to regress to the main. That's supposed to, okay, you shot the, you know, shot the heck out of it in the first round against Milwaukee, but that's not going to carry over, which it actually didn't in the New York series. And th that's the other interesting thing, about the, I think, about this going into this series is that Nick's series to some degree threw us off the scent because Miami kind of offensively reverted to form and just was able to shut New York down defensively. And it seemed like it was much more about the, the limitations of the Knicks than it was necessarily what the Heat were doing in a way that was going to translate against a better opponent in Miami. And instead, I guess the takeaway should have been, wow, it's amazing that Miami managed to win this series with Jimmy Butler hobbled after that ankle injury. And now that he looks very healthy, plenty healthy enough to get down on one knee and signal timeout uh uh the the heat are suddenly an offensive juggernaut again butler especially like getting an extended rest which if the heat can even even if it takes five to to win this series they will presumably get that is very good news for them and there was a time early in and this is the way that the passage of time can work after game two that is exactly how i felt about heat Knicks. but then we got more games and you just kind of thought about things a little bit differently jimmy butler it, it, you know, they, them losing that game close without Butler. I'm like, okay, so the Heat are winning the series, but then Butler not looking like Butler. It's like, oh, well, that's going to be dangerous. And the Celtics, like, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I know the thought I had was like, oh, this might be the worst case scenario where the Heat managed to win this series, but Jimmy is too hobbled to actually make a difference against the Celtics. And we have a sweep, which it turns out we very well might have. We might have. Yeah. It's the, it's the, but for you, um, of, of series. And, and I think that's a natural trend. No, 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 wait, 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 it's, but not for me. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. Thank you. Thank you, Kevin. Um, there will, of course, be a lot of discussion, but also real repercussions, however that falls in Boston for how this shakes out. And for example, Nate and I were doing this game on playback and we kind of said like somebody, somebody said two maxes for this, like the idea of like, is Jalen Brown now with the all NBA appearance he's eligible for a much more lucrative extension, which I believe the Celtics should offer and he should accept should it come to pass. There will be a natural inclination to 
say it's the player's fault, it's the coach's fault. And I I believe the answer is both, but I also don't know how to address this overall when you consider that per clean the glass, the Celtics were the best team in the regular season this year by a point in a 1.1 points per 100 possessions. And they, of course, this is a deeply disappointing playoff exit and they made it to the NBA finals last year. So what are you feeling in terms of how, like what as Boston, because, because a lot of times like we could talk about how and why this series has gone so south for them. And you could argue, you know, it took them longer to beat the Hawks and the Sixers than we expected, but how you react to that in many ways with a team with this setup of a roster structure matters more than your diagnosis itself. Do you agree with that? I mean, I think the way that people often, to, to that point, the way that people often think about these decisions is backward. What was the reason we lost? As opposed to thinking about it forward is in what will be the best decision for us over the next few years? Because those answers aren't necessarily the same thing. Sure. You know, parsing out blame doesn't necessarily tell you anything. Like, as we were sitting here in the aftermath of Miami in slightly less dominant fashion and with an injury to the star, doing this to Milwaukee in 2020, three years, two and a half years ago, actually, because that, that series took place in the fall. Like, if you would have overreacted to that, you could have broken up the core and the coach that ended up winning the championship next season. And I think in every scenario, people are apt to underrate the degree of randomness that exists in even a best of seven playoff series and to treat that as more of a definitive statement about the team than it is. That said, I think two things. I mean, number one, you you mentioned this. The Celtics have had this tendency dating back to parts of last year's playoffs to only bring their best effort when it seemed absolutely necessary. And that's an extremely dangerous tendency to have. And it burned them in this series. They were the student that got used to, oh, I don't need to study. I'll cram the night before the test and figure everything out and I'll do fine. And like they were taking high school classes and getting by. That was that was the first two rounds for them. And then all of a sudden they got into college and tried to do that. And they're flunking out. That's that's my analogy for the Celtics. So I think that is something that needs to be addressed going forward, whether it's whether you pin that on the roster or whether you think that's a function of Joe Mazzola. I, and to me, it's hard to blame that on Mazzola because, again, that that trend dates back to last year when Ime Yudoka was the head coach. If we're going to connect that with some of their late game execution problems, then that you was go the back. I was going. Then yeah. you go back to more coaches. Like then you go back to Brad Stevens and and everything else. And you there's also this problem, and it, it's so funny because you know, like I've been geographically closer to the Warriors and watched their run, and there there are some foibles with that team too. Now they have had dramatically more success during their run to this point than the Celtics run to this point, worth noting the relative ages of their key players. And it was like, you know, oh, they, the Warriors turned the ball over too much. They turned the distance. But, and I'm like, maybe you can correct some of that. But it is a really difficult needle to thread because I I think that some of the blame here goes to the players. And, you know, that, that there is an, an inherent, not only inconsistency, but also flaw that neither, even with their improvements, neither Jason Tatum nor Jason Jalen Brown is that every down running back that consistent offensive engine and that it leads to some of their late game struggles. It can lead to ball movements up, some of the weird mistakes that happened that loomed large in game two as well. And so there's something there. But the the challenge, and this gets into the idea you were talking before about overreaction, is you have to compare that to an alternative. And it is exceedingly hard to get 
those players, the best players on a title team unambiguously. And a lot of times you don't know it until they do it. You know, like Stephen Curry, there were plenty of doubts on him before the Warriors won their first title. Fewer doubts. <laughs> there, were, there were doubts on him being the best player in a title team up to last year in some degree. Fair enough. <laughs> and, you know, and, and you could go through like Giannis and KD and whoever the best player is on the title team this year will absolutely yep. fit that description. And especially if it's Jokic. And so you have that, you have that point like getting that player identifying and then acquiring that player is exceedingly hard they almost never change teams and when they do it's an anomalous thing like i, I i've i've thought of, thought about an idea of writing a piece on this color like with the idea of earthquakes um they don't change teams very often and when they do it's this paradigm shifting thing what but whatever lead could you use that related an actual literal earthquake to a game-changing nba transaction that happened that same night you're remembering something i'm not oh, Kawhi and paul george Oh, that's right. The night of the earthquake in Vegas. Oh, man. Our dinner at oh. uh, Momofuku. Momofuku, that's right. And where I was not involved in that dinner and sprinted from my hotel room to come to the dinner so that we could ha- <laughs> Nate and I could hash out the podcast. Um, that, was a, that was a fun night. And so those things are hard to do. And then you also have to compare it to the alternative. So is there a scenario where Jalen Brown on a different team, presumably with talent going back to Boston, makes them better, makes them more of a championship contender? Absolutely. Like there's- yep pathway for that there are a lot of pathways where they're worse and significantly worse and the finals run last year is the best they ever do as great as jason tatum is and tatum could make improvements everything else so you have to weigh as brad stevens as ownership in many ways this is an ownership level decision you have to weigh all of those things together and the lack of the clear qualifiers or even players that have that kind of potential in the current nba is fascinating like that they're there and, and if to me if you trade jalen brown or jason tatum but jalen brown for the for anything less than that it's it's a more dangerous game i mean there's one obvious name here isn't there it makes you quite old but you're much older but you know the guy who could be the offensive engine in a late game situation who someday might get traded from the team that he's called home his entire career damian lillard Sure. That, that would be pretty, pretty juicy. And Jalen Brown is young enough. And, and honestly, for Portland, you could make an argument that Brown agreeing to that extension, it, it wouldn't be a trade that could happen right away, but that, that you, that it would, because that would give the security for Portland getting a guy on an expiring contract that they wouldn't have the same power to extend. That would be a limitation for them. I'm not a hundred percent sure that Lillard could be the best player in a title team right now, but Lillard plus Tatum. Yeah. Right. You could, you could make an argument there. And that's especially because Jalen brown is so talented like you could get to a player like lillard without giving up everything else and so robert williams al horford become more important in that scenario and you kept him yeah i mean you could even wonder whether it would be a three-team construction if the blazers just prioritize draft picks and send jalen brown to another team but obviously that's way down the road i i think it's related to the question other question you have to ask right now though does jalen brown have as much trade value on that supermax extension for the reasons you outlined in terms of the long term, you know, having him under contract for an extended period of time than he has trying to trade him this summer heading into the, I believe, the final season of his contract, right? Correct. And I think that the extension increases his value. The only possible exception would be a franchise that was supremely confident that they could get him to resign. 
And Brown can make a team more confident in that by expressing so. It would be privately, but, you know, it could be semi-privately like the Celtics find out or other things. And there have been circumstances like that, of course, in the past. And so whatever that is that Jalen Brown wants, I mean, and, and of course, one of the things to acknowledge is it could be the Celtics, like their championship relevant team. They made the finals last year, everything else. But if it's a return back to back to Georgia, like then that's the case. Or it's a different team where he has more with the freedom that James Harden is, is appears to be valuing that sort of thing as well like in that circumstance maybe so but especially with the cap rising even if it's set for 10 10 a year is the most it can go up i think that certainty is worth it and so for me preliminarily other than there being a delay and potentially making a move i would rather have him on that contract even if it's more expensive, because you know. Yeah, and to your point about the 10% maximum that the cap can jump under the new CBA, that's still larger than the 8% raise in the first year. And because of the fact that those raises aren't compounded, you're not keeping pace with the cap to a greater degree every year. So it's not exactly 35% of the cap for him you know, in year four or five of that extension when he should still relatively be in his prime. I mean, I think let's go back though to the kind of the bigger picture question that you raised at the beginning of this discussion, which is having two wings is your primary playmakers in late game situations. And, you know, the we you have to break up Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum argument from December 2021 was pretty facile and reductive, I thought. But I, I do wonder if there has been some rethinking of the wing heavy model in the last couple of years here with, you know, Kawhi and Paul George, as I talked about with that earthquake, like that was the model for a period of time. But they have not translated that into a championship. Injuries have been a huge factor in that the Clippers team was still very good this year when both of those guys were on the court. But I think it looks a little different than it did now when the goal was kind of like, let's get as many interchangeable guys as possible. And now there might be a little more emphasis on ball handling as part of this. I mean, I don't know if you want to call Jimmy Butler a wing. He's played point guard a lot. He defends power forwards often in Miami's setup. You know, I, I he just kind of doesn't even have a position. But in Denver's case, having a, a ball handler in Jamal Murray as part of their top two has, has clearly worked out very well for them this postseason. And that inability in the in the that struggle in the clutch has been a recurrent theme for Boston. It's not just something that's happening in this series. That is an extremely fascinating point that I want to get back to. But a quick aside, John Schumann asked the question during Game Three of what was the last series this surprising, and my answer is. That involving that Clippers team, that Clippers Nuggets series where LA goes up and they're, uh, you know, a heartbeat away from the conference finals. If you want to count in what was going on, I believe that was game five. That to me, what, and maybe that was underselling the Nuggets. That was the last series that was as stunning as this because I thought it was very close to done. And I gave Miami more respect than I gave the Nuggets at that point. And Denver came back, won that series, and then had a, had a respectable show of it against the Lakers before falling. Yeah, I think that's that's a good, uh, I mean, both that and the Miami-Milwaukee series, but you had the honest injury is a factor in that one. The Clippers-Nuggets series is probably the most similar in terms of, you know, even up till Game 7, maybe up until the second half of Game 7, you're like, well, the Clippers are eventually going to stop messing around and win this, right? And I think there was still that feeling, even with the heat up 2 nothing, like they were favored going in the series going into Sunday night, but they weren't overwhelmingly favored for a I team mean, up 2 nothing at home. Vegas sets things differently. Boston was favored in game three on the road. Yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, lost. But let's get back to the wing model because that's such a such an important point for thinking about the league. And I think you can solve it in a number of different ways, just like how 
Denver doesn't have those kind of wing players, but it's, oh, they have the best offensive player in the league who is a center. And the Warriors didn't, they had a different kind of theory of the wings. They had lower usage guys who were very good, but it was because Stephen Curry is incredible and they had this different scheme and Draymond had the ball in his hands, but it's, the role is a little bit more nebulous. But the Celtics offense ground down and, and the challenge, and it's so funny. I think back to conversations I had with Matt Moore and a few others. Like I talked about this a lot when I was really skeptical of the Celtics back in like 2019. This idea that they were going to run up against a team that could take away the things they did well because the way the NBA works is there's always going to be a team that's that's playing better or is better than where I thought they were going to be. And to their credit, both Tatum and Brown, especially Tatum, have gotten significantly better from that point. But it might be that the general concept there was true is that if, unless you, unless those wings are superlative, they're LeBron James level creators, that there will be a team that can take away some of what you do. And that if your defense doesn't, can't get all the way back, if you don't have those other things, if your shooting can sometimes tailspin, Boston shot 26% from three in game three, then you're like, I referred to it at the time as super team vulnerable, but it might not even be that. It might just be like really good team vulnerable. Now, the other thing we should say here is we're talking about, Jay, again, about Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown looking, I mean, not not yet backwards because the the one point we should make at some point in here, I don't think it's going to be either of these two series. Eventually, someone is going to come back from 3 nothing. It's a question of win, not if. Uh, yeah, just it's sort of like the 16 ones in the NCAA tournament. Exactly, which now has happened multiple times. But Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, as they are right now, have not been good enough as playmakers in those situations. Could Jason Tatum, with a slightly longer offseason than he had last year get in the lab and improve to the point where he reaches that level i think that's plausible of course yeah and i mean Giannis got a lot better between some of the times that we wondered about him and, and his championship Jokic has gotten a lot better over the last couple of years as well and you know surrounding talent can make a huge difference plenty more to discuss with kevin pelton but first a message from fanduel Make a fast break to FanDuel during the NBA playoffs because right now new customers can get a no-sweat first bet up to $1,000. That's $1,000 back in bonus bets if your first bet does not win. I think it's really cool that they have the combination now of team-specific stuff. Sure, you can do the over-unders and, and all that, but also player props. And player props can be a fun way if you think, oh, this is a great matchup for Jokic or whatever player that you can get. I mean, Jamal Murray has his ups and downs. You can do all that through FanDuel, and that's why there's no better place to bet all the playoff action than America's number one sportsbook. Visit FanDuel.com slash Boston and get a no-sweat first bet up to $1,000. That's FanDuel.com slash Boston, B-O-S-T-O-N. FanDuel, official sports betting partner of the NBA. Must be 21 and over in select states. First online real money wager only. $10 deposit required. Refund issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in 14 days. Restrictions apply. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash Sportsbook. FanDuel is offering... Online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit FanDuel.com slash RG. 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text Next Step to 53342. 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat. 1-800-9-WITH-IT. 1-800-522-4700 or visit ksgamblinghelp.com. 1-877-770-STOP. 
gamblinghelplinema.org, or you can call 1-800-327-5050 for 24-7 support in Massachusetts. Visit mdgamblinghelp.org, 1-877-8-HOPE-NY, or text HOPE-NY, 1-800-522-4700, or visit 1-800-GAMBLER.net. The other key question, and it's led to a, in a discussion that you and I are both part of, but not, <laughs> not the sole part of, an extended discussion about Joe Missoula. And we're not, we're not the angriest in that discussion. Let's put it that no, way. No, <laughs> you and I usually aren't. Um, but the, there are some really interesting elements of it. And I, I kind of don't want to, I mean, it's, it's weird because I kind of don't want to attribute different points to different people who have made it. But Joe Missoula got the job in an extremely unusual way because he was, a highly regarded assistant, though probably not the high, most highly regarded assistant because that was yep. Will Hardy who got the jazz job. Then Ime Odoka gets put on suspension shortly before the start of the season. Missoula gets the interim job. And then roughly, you probably remember the date because you're better at this, two thirds of the way through the season, Missoula gets the interim title removed partially because that's when things resolved sufficiently with Udoka and gets, gets the head job. So typically an opening this enticing where you have a team that made the finals the previous year and is built on young talent that is under, let's call it a version of team control now that Jalen Brown is eligible for this extension. That would be an extremely hot job. Is it possible that with all, it is possible that with all of that, that they would still hire Joe Missoula, that they would do it that way. It's hard to know, but they would be in the mix for everyone else. And what makes this significantly different is the supply of available head coaches and the success that they've had is unusually strong. So if you're ownership for the Celtics, the decision you have to make is, and some of this you can do clandestine discussions with some of the people involved here, is can you get Nick Nurse? Can you get, if you think he's significantly better, Monty Williams or Coach X? And if so, then are you willing to eat the money necessary to make that change happen? Yeah, I mean, I think the kind of the way, part of the way you have to think about it is, had Emi Yudoka's suspension come earlier in the offseason and had it been a situation where it was clear 100% at that point that it was not just a suspension that he was never going to come back as head coach even though I I think it was pretty widely suspected shortly after that suspension was announced that that was going to be the case would they have conducted an open search rather than you know focusing on in-house candidates and this was an extremely an almost unprecedentedly large jump in responsibilities for Joe Mazzola, who was someone who I don't believe was on the front of the bench last season under Ime Adoka. I think he was behind the bench. And you almost never see someone go from, you know, that role where you're not one of the assistants who's out in the huddles during every timeout to being head coach of a team. Uh, so, you know, I think those elements make it an interesting situation. I, I think there is a little danger from the Celtics standpoint of, you know, we, we talked about this a little bit earlier, like, the players need to take ownership of what's happened here because their tendency to not be at peak focus at all times predates Joe Mazzola. It goes back to last year's postseason. It was more explainable last year because it wasn't against his weak opponents, but it still happened. And I do think there is an element of if you fire Joe Mazzola, you're kind of telling the players it wasn't your fault. And that's maybe not the message they need to hear right now. 
It's also possible that the message can be sent privately on the other part of it. But of course, if that, if it comes with firing Missoula and extending Jalen Brown, then the public element, the public facing elements of that will be somewhat unambiguous in a different direction. And it also matters, you know, how that message, should it be conveyed, is taken by the forces in play. And it's another bizarre part of the series. And I don't think you need to focus necessarily on the three point shot, you know, that deserted Al Horford for large sections of this series. He was two for five in game three. Marcus Smart is that we praised Miami's support players, the Gabe Vincents and Max Struces, for doing very well so far in the series. I would also argue that Smart, Horford, Derek White, who I'm a big fan of normally, Rob Williams, Malcolm Brogdon, though he's been better than I expected, like, collectively, and there have been strong and weak moments for each of them, they haven't been up to their standard either. So I think another thing that happens as the NBA shifts more to a three-point game is players whose contributions are primarily dependent on threes inevitably become more inconsistent mm-hmm. because sometimes those shots go in and sometimes they don't. And I don't know that there's necessarily a rhyme or reason to that. And I do think that's a small factor in the fact that we're seeing more upsets. I think there are multiple factors to that. The fact that home court advantage is no longer as strong as it used to be is something we don't really talk about is an element of it. And then there's kind of this feedback loop uh, in terms of what that means for the regular season. But the three-pointers are a factor of that. And if you're Al Horford and the teams are leaving you open and you're not making that shot, there's only so much else you can do. Like if he's in the paint, that's cramping their spacing. That's not what they want him to do. He, you just kind of need to make those shots. And sometimes you don't. It's a great point. And I wonder how that shakes out moving forward. And these are high pressure moments. And it's not only how I, I, I generally don't particularly care how like media members interpret this, but how, t- how executives do, how players do, because if Horford changes the way he plays, that can be a problem too you know if you get into that or if you play this person less because they're not hitting the shots they're supposed to hit but you're relying on the smaller sample than the bigger sample of they're a good shooter overall they bring other things to the table and it creates more challenging choices and it's funny i go back to the clippers with that like they have so many of their support players that played terribly overall this year and that's going to be a key question moving forward and so how you do that and so that's another element that brad stevens and the celtics front office is going to have to assess is okay you have a decision to make with Jalen Brown and then but do you do anything else and I think there are competing pressures because I mean Horford signed this very reasonable extension Robert Williams is on a very reasonable extension Brogdon I think gave them a lot this year but so so you could argue you could make a very capable case that's like this is about as good as you're going to do, and you largely keep the band together. The team is expensive and will be significantly in time. But do you, if you have to, do you downgrade, can, like, EV-wise, because a change is necessary and because it's not all about EV, it's about giving yourself the possibility, you know, like those 80 and 85th percentile outcomes really do matter with players like this. Do you have a player in mind, the uh, player type in mind that you think would make sense in that regard? I would love to see. So like the problem, the problem with like non-star dynamic players on ball is that almost every single one of them has some sort of severe flaw, which I think would be a huge problem. To solve. So like, I'm not saying him specifically. 
specifically, but like, let's say the example of like Mike Conley and they had Kemba Walker recently. So we know how this can go. It's like, okay, would, would he help stabilize their offense? Yeah, I think he would, but he would have a big old target on him as far as the playoffs go. And once you take steps down, you know, like Conley, I mean, he was, he was fairly available at the deadline. Like, and Conley has a big contract. There isn't a low rent version of that who is both good enough offensively and good enough defensively to make sense on the Celtics. Like, I know that was probably the dream for Derek White. Derek White's not good. Good, He's not good at that offensively. He's good at other things, and he's wonderful defensively. So no, I don't really have somebody in mind. I have an archetype, but I think the idea that that archetype doesn't exist is exceedingly important. I, I mean, we should talk at some point. It, it feels like Malcolm Brogdon's decision-making in the playoffs has really just not been good enough because that was no, also supposed to be a lot of what he was supposed to bring is that stabilizing force, another ball handler to solve some of the yields we saw last year in the finals against the Warriors. I don't think they can get him. I, I don't even know if a Jalen Brown trade would make sense here. I've danced around the idea the last couple weeks of Tyrese Halliburton on the, on the Celtics. Somebody, <laughs> that would be amazing. Yes, I agree. Someone who can play on and off ball, who isn't great defensively, but can kind of do it. Like, it, I, I've become obsessed with this idea of, of reciprocal versatility, which is like, you're the weaker defender, but you can guard multiple positions well enough that you're not going to get slaughtered. And I the, think the Luka Doncic corollary, the Luka Doncic corollary. And I think that there is value to that from a team perspective and like the difference between that and other than some specific moments like what Trey Young has done and some other guys. And and so that's sort of a player, but Halliburton is probably the exception that proves the rule. Like, I mean, I, I, it's hard to conceive of a way that Indiana can that Indiana would do a trade like that, especially when you consider Halliburton's price tag right now. Oh, yeah. I mean, Terry Halliburton's to me, one of the, the 10 most valuable players from a trade standpoint in the league. Right. And the, there aren't even like arbitrage opportunities on this. I mean, like you, there are players who have that potential, but just for whatever reason, have it, you know, like they've been injured or something like that. Like they, it's just not the way these things generally work out. So it is, it is tough sledding. You know, I, I, I'm sure there will be like a, yes, Shea Kilgis Alexander, great fit for Boston. Don't know how they get it. Yeah. I mean, James Harden would be an easy Oh my Lord. Let's solve our off- let's solve our playoff problems. Let's hire Do- get rid of Joe Mazzilla, hire Doc Rivers, and trade for James Harden in a sign and trade. Oh, oh man. <laughs> oh. Well, thank you for that. Um, anything else? I mean, we have a lot to talk about with the other series. Anything else with these two teams that you think is a screaming thing to discuss? I, I to go back to your point specifically though, like we kind of saw it in this series when they tried to play Peyton Pritchard in Game One, and it, a lot of what makes the Celtics the favorites for most of this postseason until they emphatically weren't is the fact that you know just no weak defenders on the court at any time. I I do think that is something that they should cling on to unless it's to get a superstar offensive player. <laughs> Agreed. Agreed. We can transition to the other 3-0 series, the Western Conference Finals, and Denver's offense has been remarkable. I mean, there's the discussion about whether Jokic or Murray would win Western Conference Finals MVP, and we'll we'll see what happens in Game 4 plus if it extends. Is there something greater to learn from this so far in the, like, the pre-postmortem is what I'm calling it, or is this a circumstance where the Lakers advanced because they played better than they're playing right now? 
I think they advanced because they played better than they're playing right now. And also they played a lot weaker opponents. Than exactly. Right now. Yeah. And, yeah. And again, I didn't want to do any disservice to Denver who have been fabulous this entire postseason. There's almost a principle in the playoffs where basically, unless you lose a really hard fought seven game series, you keep playing until your weaknesses get exposed. And I think that's happened to a large degree with the Lakers in this series. And it's interesting because it's, it's happened largely in the way that I expected to happen in the last series, which was why I picked the Warriors that I thought that, you know, Jared Vanderbilt's non-shooting on offense, D'Angelo Russell's defense would make those guys difficult to play by the end of a playoff series. And all of a sudden you're starting to run out of guys as much depth as they added with that trade at the deadline or trades plural, if you want to include the Riachi Mora trade, which he's held up great. And now, you know, this is something that Seth talked about earlier in the playoffs on Twitter is like coaches tend to get blamed when their options aren't very good. And that's how I feel about Darvin Ham right now. Like, is Darvin Ham starting the group that I would start? No, absolutely not. I I would at this point, despite the concerns about losing him, have benched D'Angelo Russell because I think that fives him with Dennis Schroeder and Rui Hachimura around Reeves, LeBron, AD, gives them the best chance of winning, although Denver did torch it in the fourth quarter last night. But if you've only got five guys you can really trust, you're probably drawing dead in the series anyway. So that's, that's kind of how I feel about the Lakers right now. Full credit to Denver for forcing those issues in a way that the Warriors and Grizzlies did not. Yep. And they've done so without necessarily fire. They've, they fired on enough cylinders, but it hasn't other than some specific stretches, like the first quarter of game one, when everything went, when they made everything go right and they, and they nailed it. And then they of course had some huge moments in the fourth quarter. And it has been players stepping up at specific moments. You know, there was the first half of game two where Jamal Murray scored 30 points and was incandescent. Then he wasn't great in the third quarter and Jokic was in foul trouble. So they did a lot of good team stuff and Kentavious Caldwell Pope had a wonderful stretch for them. And then they got, they, Jokic took them home, 15 points, masterful fourth quarter. And part of what I've really grown to appreciate about Denver is the way that Jokic bends defenses that is fundamentally different from every other player in the NBA. And you see that more clearly when Anthony Davis is guarding him because Jokic can, Jokic is a threat as a scorer and a passer wherever he is in the, in the half court. And so that allows Michael Malone and allows Jokic and allows the rest of the team to contort defenses and put them into disadvantages. And you, you and I have talked over the years like this, this overall, this overall theory that I have of both offense and defense that what you're trying to do is force your opponent into bad choices where, you know, sort of like you were talking about with Darvin Ham's rotation where you're, oh, we're going to either double this guy and leave a three-point shooter open or we're going to leave Jimmy Butler one-on-one, you know, with Grant Williams or Derek White or Malcolm Brogdon guarding him. And what Jokic does because he's so good on ball and he's so good as a passer is instead of those decisions coming in the paint where smart teams and well coached teams can can do things to attack it when that's at the top of the key you can't operate in the same ways and you're going to have seams you're going to have things that are impossible to recover from even if you have another good help defender which the lakers often do and it's also a case of who you're forcing to make those decisions because you know when anthony davis is guarding him one-on-one defending you know a ball handler 25 feet from the basket navigating screens things like 
like that. That's not his comfort zone. That's not what he wants to be doing. So that element of it too, I mean, just having a seven-footer who can run pick and roll, that's we're, we're going to see more of it as seven-footers become more skilled. But that's still, to me, much more of a unicorn trait than a seven-footer who can shoot threes off the catch because a lot of them can do that now. Jokic being so difficult to guard one-on-one also just, and, and being such a good passer, like it, it's a weird parallel because they're playing in this series, but it rem- it reminds me in certain ways of peak LeBron, where you can't bring the extra help in the same way that you can against a Kawhi Leonard or a certain other guys, because he'll make the pass before the help gets there. I mean, there was a, an amazing one in game three where I thought Jokic actually passed it too fast as, you know, create the advantage. But what he did was because the player was coming over for a version of a double, he got them when they were moving the wrong direction. And so that made it easier to get all the pass and play. I think that one ended with a Jamal Murray three might have been a Brown three. And I I had the opposite thought about one of the plays. He had a post up in game two where I'm like, well, get, you know, swing the ball out, get them in rotation. Like that's conventionally what NBA offense is supposed to do when you double the post. And instead he dribbles kind of the opposite direction away from the hoop. But it turns out he was opening up a passing lane for a cutting KCP for a layup. And like, yeah. I should, I, I, I got to trust Jokic's instincts, obviously. Yeah. And and two other ridiculous Jokic things that you, you alluded to one, but I want to make it more plain. Anthony Davis, like almost every big man who has ever existed, is not great at getting through a screen. Jokic despite you know what you would consider with his frame a he's improved his stamina b he's just unbelievable at this he moves through screens offensively like off ball screens better than any like true center i've i can recall ever seeing like no i'm not comparing him to like seven footers because there's some seven footers who don't move like centers like kg and KG. durant and yeah. many others but that has put davis when he's so so the lakers have gotten into the circumstance where basically the only guy they have on their team other than davis Davis, who can even slightly credibly guard Jokic is LeBron, and LeBron actually did an awesome job for parts of the game too, but it took so much out of him, is is Davis, and Jokic is so good at every phase of offense that they found the few parts of defense that Anthony Davis does not thrive at, and they're creating those problems. And then the other one was, okay, you're going to do all these other things, then we're just going to run some 5-1 pick and roll at you, and no one can do anything about that. Yeah, that's a good way to think about it, I think, in terms of Anthony, like, the more things you do offensively, and Jokic does everything, the more ways it gives you to pick at and find whatever your opponent's strengths are. It's also a really healthy way to think about defense. I mean, because it's it's a lot easier with offense to identify those like strengths and weaknesses. And like, I mean, the nuance of like, this guy's a good offensive player, but he's not as dynamic on the ball. You know, we, that that's something that's very easy to talk about. These specific strengths and weaknesses of players defensively can be more nuanced. And I, I'm happy that we're getting closer to that. And I mean, Ben Taylor's done some great work on this, but Anthony Davis, a superlative defender and the, you know, the best defensive player on a championship team, you know, when he's been healthy, you could argue the best defensive player of the league. I mean, he was in, he was in my defensive player of the year conversation, despite, you know, missing a significant portion of the year. And they found one of the few things that he does well that you could basically never exploit because, well, who in the world is going to do that? And the answer is Jokic. Yeah, he's he's the one, literally the one. So, and I mean, there are lots of players, again, like partially because we talked about the Heat Celtics series for a long time. There are a lot of Nuggets players that deserve praise. And, And Michael Malone for moving away in game three from Aaron Gordon 
and Aaron Gordon for apparently being okay with it, unlike certain players allegedly in certain other series or in the same series. But we're on limited time, and I'm not going to have you on the pod again beforehand, even if we have eight days off. We don't know that the finals is going to be Heat Nuggets yet, but it's pretty, pretty likely. Preliminary inclinations on it? Yeah, it was only during the second half of Heat Celtics tonight that uh, I I allowed myself to start thinking about it. Uh, So Aaron Gordon defends Butler, right? Base alignment, yes. Which leaves Michael Porter Jr. uh, against the starters on Kevin Love, which Love might be able to cause some problems crashing the offensive glass against him, but that's that's a reasonable look. Jokic on Bam is going to be interesting. I I mean, maybe you wonder if you put Jokic on someone a little less threatening offensively at some point the way that they did at times in that Phoenix series. But then, as we talked about earlier in the pod, there is no version of Torrey Craig on the Heat because all of those guys can shoot at least a little bit. I mean, maybe you put him on Love to start. That would be interesting. Hmm, yeah. But, Maybe. Then they'd probably pick and pop with love. That That's one thing I wrote about the other day uh, about the light. The Lakers have not been very effective in this series in, in game two in particular, according to the second spectrum tracking against Jokic dropping. And I suggested, you know, maybe they try to get Rui Hachimura involved in that because he can pop in a way that AD isn't that same kind of threat. And the pop is in some ways, you know, if you if you're defending the pull up jumper as well as the Nuggets guards are, that's the way maybe you can take advantage of the drop coverage. Uh, other end of the court, I mean, bam, do, do you, do you dare start Kevin Love on Jokic? Oof, I think it's worth a try and it's not going to be Cody Zeller. <laughs> so <laughs> look at his chance. Yes, because like uh, it's, I, I've grown to appreciate this funny. This is the two centers that I've been like very, very skeptical of who are actually really good. You know, like there are centers that are worse that I've been skeptical of, like Vooch and everything else. But like, like this isn't a Vooch the bonus finals. This is Jokic and Bam who are like great. And what I've worried about with Bam is that he's not, he's more of a team defender and in like a smaller guy isolation defender. Like he's one of the best switch defenders in the league, but those like beast guys he has trouble with. And now you get to face the ultimate, you know, it's the, the big boss there. And so you can do that through a team concept. But as we just talked about, defending Jokic through a team concept creates a ton of problems. If there's a video game with Jokic is the big boss, are his brothers the uh, bosses you have to fight to get to the big boss? Or like a massive, complicated series of horses. I think it could be a combination <laughs> of the two. I'm not exactly sure. I'd play that video game, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, I bet my nephews would enjoy it. No, uh, yeah, and what's, what's amusing to me about that matchup is Love and Jokic are an archetype uh, of their own to me of players who I think are not as bad defensively as they look because everyone focuses on their lack of rim protection defensively and doesn't notice some of the subtle things they do in terms of, you know, both historically have generated a high number of steals. Love now takes tons of charges. They're they're very good defensive rebounders. They don't commit a lot of shooting fouls. I, won't, I don't want to say that Jokic is necessarily low fouls through his entire career because he used to have all of those kind of frustrations, stop fast break kind of fouls that thankfully he's taken out of his game so they're kind of similar players in my mind from that regard so it'd be very amusing to see them matching up in a in an nba finals one thing i do think we'll see 
in key moments is Jimmy Butler and Bam Adebayo on Jokic and Murray so that you can switch some of those actions, but they could just use other players involved in it. And so put, put heat on Struess and on Vincent or Duncan Robinson or unintended. No, but <laughs> sure. I'll take, I'll, I'll take the very, very faint W on that. Um, and so they'll, they'll stress out all those players and that is, that is fascinating. And Spolstra has, he, I think he has better pieces to work with than most coaches and also has typically done a very good job in that circumstance. And so part of why I love the idea of this series is that there are a lot of stress tests. And it kind of there's some parallels. Nate and I talked about this with Nuggets Suns, where each of the like those teams didn't have great plan Bs. Like the idea that, okay, well, who's gonna guard KD and who's gonna guard Jokic and, and all those things. And like, I mean, it ended up being that not only were the Nuggets plan Bs better, but they also didn't need them as much. But that goes the other way for like when the Heat have the ball of you can uh, you can pressure so a key weakness that the Nuggets have generally is rim protection. That's why I thought a, a, an inflection point of this series would be if the Lakers can get consistent dribble penetration, really wherever it's coming from, they can get good stuff around the basket. And that happened in the second quarter of game three, where Jokic was in foul trouble, he wasn't really contesting anything. And when Schroeder or Reeves got by their man, they were getting fouled, they were getting things around the basket. It just hasn't happened enough. And Denver made the adjustment to dare, most notably LeBron James, to shoot three-pointers. Those weaknesses could be more pressing against the Heat than they have been against Denver's other opponents. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I feel like to some degree, even though I've picked the Nuggets in two out of the three series and and felt that they were the clear favorites in the conference finals, like to some degree, it's like which team's weaknesses that haven't affected them thus far that are part of the reason that we didn't expect them to be as good as they've been in the playoffs are going to finally come to the fore in this final series. In Miami's case, it's a little less clear what those are except just kind of that again they keep shooting over their heads their entire postseason in the nuggets case it's this one clear thing in terms of their their rim protection is the the issue that you know the the thing that for most teams would be a fatal flaw but because of the fact that they're that they have built around it defensively and because they are so awesome defensively has not caused has not operated that way for them thus far and 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 I don't I, I mean, I would I would probably pick the Nuggets in this series, which I, I don't know if I've ever picked against the same team four times in one playoffs. That's a, a remarkable job of not learning my lesson at all, I suppose. <laughs> that would be a uh, yeah, I, I didn't pick the first round because I was on paternity leave, but I would have to think about how that would go. I'm really excited about this as a potential finals and the the dynamics that are in place. And there's another part of it. I I don't like to think about things in terms of narrative. I'm not as gifted as other people are at it. But the idea of either Jimmy Butler or Nikola Jokic being the best player in a championship team is really, really exciting for me. And Yo- like Jokic in particular, it's something that I fixated on before Kevin Durant was a free agent. And this I never wrote this in all the pieces that I did about like Durant potentially joining the Warriors before it happened. One of the most fatiguing, and I don't even engage in it discussions for me are like the best players who haven't won a title whether it's framed in the way of like that you know like the though they did but they haven't won this or in the other way of like it's a demerit because they haven't done it and so for a player as great as Jokic to potentially have that off with still so much left of his career would be fantastic but this would also be a wonderful culmination
question, should Miami do it for so many amazing players and people around this organization? I mean, if I think about two of the players that I've considered the most underrated by, you know, the consensus, whatever that is, over the last few years, Jokic and Jimmy Butler are right near the very top for me. And so, yeah, that kind of validation for one of those two players, you know, becoming just kind of undeniable as all time greats, although Jokic already is and, and Jimmy Butler certainly should be, would be would be pretty incredible from that standpoint. Also, I looked this up and I picked the Mavericks in the 2011 conference finals. They were the other team I could have plausibly. I know I picked against them three out of four series that year. Amazing. Oh, but I did want to say one other thing on this point. You mentioned that Jokic is younger, and this is absolutely true. But I do think one thing we should not take for granted for the Nuggets is, you know, this opportunity for them. Because number one, it's going to be very difficult for them to re-sign Bruce Brown Jr. this year when you look at the limitations on them, both as a non-bird free agent and then, you know, the the eventual second apron and, and all those tax restrictions. And number two, knock on wood, you know, Michael Porter Jr. has managed to stay healthy this entire season. That's not going to be a guarantee going forward. And, you know, I don't say that because of the fact that I, I obviously hope that they have many, many more runs in them. But, you know, to set aside the whole like pressure argument that I, I find kind of a tar- tired part of that narrative, I do think, you know, you can't take this opportunity for granted. You, you know, lots of teams have gotten here and thought that it, they were, this was the start of many and it's been their only opportunity and you better take advantage of it while you can. Beyond that, lots of teams have gotten a lot less close, for, further away than this and thought there were a lot more coming <laughs> And who knows? Well, yes, that's the uh, conference finals curse in recent years has been interesting. Or even I, I hope I hope it isn't this way, but the Memphis Grizzlies. Yeah. Although, again, then this is where we caveat the, the Heat Nuggets have not gotten there yet. Still got to get to four. LeBron James is happy to tell us that it takes four wins. Darvin Ham reiterated that after game three as well. So uh, they're, they're very, very close, but not quite to the finish line. Unfortunately, for me at least, we are to the finish line of this podcast. But thank you so much for taking the time, Kevin. What a lovely transition. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Kevin Pelton for taking the time to come on. And, you know, I appreciate that even more considering I feel that he is the hardest working person in our business and does such incredible work at ESPN. Going straight from this pretty much to the wonderful off-season work that he does is so impressive. And you can also listen to the fabulous Pelton cast that he does, which is really cool. A little bit different. Get more of more of his personality, though you honestly get that everywhere. And if you don't already, you can follow him on Twitter at kpelton, K-P-E-L-T-O-N. Love having him on whenever he has the time. And if you want to support this show, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. You can subscribe, download every episode. Really appreciate that. Whatever podcast player you use, you can should be able to subscribe there. If you can't, let me know. That's always good to, and I it goes above me, but I, I like to know that, and I will pass it to people who can figure those things out, which I cannot do. You can also help other people find the show. That's by leaving a rating and review in the aforementioned podcast player or spreading the word, word of mouth, social media, however you want to do it. But the most important thing you can do for Real GM Radio and any other show that has them is to check out our sponsors. And for us, that is FanDuel. You get that no sweat first bet up to $1,000 if you are a new customer and go to fanduel.com slash Boston. Of course, talked about this earlier. Plenty of awesome stuff you can do on there, especially associated with the NBA playoffs, which you're presumably interested in if you're listening to this. You can also check out my other work. Lots of great stuff with Nate Duncan. 
dunked on, dunked on prime, going strong. Not only are we doing playoff analysis, but we started our off-season previews on Sunday, which is very exciting. And we're getting into draft work very soon. I've started my prep. Nate is getting his going now. And so that will kick into higher gear for the roughly one month that we have until the NBA draft. And of course, you will hear draft content to a lesser degree, but some here on Real GM Radio as well. I should also have some written work at the Athletic soon did a collaborative piece with Tim Kawakami. I finally got to spend some quality time with the uh, term sheet for the next CBA, not the actual document, but the term sheet. So worked through some of that, did some basic math for the Warriors offseason there. And if you have any feedback, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com is the way to get it to me. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. That is an absolute promise. Won't always get back to you, but I try. I try, but I admit that I'm not the greatest with that, and I want to be open and candid with all of you if you've taken time to listen. And that's all for now. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day.